Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina. A place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and will bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, and I am back, not with another Stephen King review. I know you're all expecting that my next review would be Salem's Lot by Stephen King. But as I prepared to read Salem's Lot, I found myself needing to do a little bit more homework. Because with Salem's Lot, Stephen King was very inspired by Dracula, the original 1897 Bram Stoker novel, the novel that defined vampires for our age. But unlike Interview with a Vampire or Twilight or Buffy or so many other vampire stories, Salem's Lot really felt like a modernization of the original Dracula tale. And I'm ashamed to admit I had never read the original Dracula novel. I'd tried. Oh, God, have I tried. When I was a teenager, I mean, even starting as a young teenager, I picked up this book in paperback. Still remember the white cover with the black graphic. I tried to read it in my early teens. I tried to read it again in my mid-teens. And I tried one final time in my late teens. And all I could remember is not being able to get into the book. I'd always stop at right about the same point, and I couldn't remember what it was that turned me off. I knew that I was fascinated by the story of Dracula. If you've listened to our now-playing podcast retrospective of Fright Night back in the day, we were constantly referencing Dracula and the rules of vampires. Did you have to invite a vampire into your home? When was that invented? What was it with vampires and roses? Silver bullets? Are those vampires or are those werewolves? So much of the mythology of vampires goes back to Dracula, and really back to this novel by Bram Stoker. As many adaptations as there have been, and I've seen so many of them, from Francis Ford Coppola's 90s version, the version in the 70s, even the Universal Pictures original one, plus the rip-offs such as Nosferatu, Those all have influenced modern vampire tales, but to go back to the original story of Dracula was something that I'd never done. I'd only seen adaptations. I'd seen a play for crying out loud, but never read this book. Read Benicula, but never Dracula. So before going and staying in Salem's Lot, Maine for a little while, I did take a trip to Transylvania and then to London with Bram Stoker on this original book. I wanted to see, finally, what the original envisioning of a vampire was. What were the rules? What was it about Dracula that has made him such an enduring character that, well over a hundred years later, 
he still looms large in popular culture. For those who don't know, Dracula is the story of Count Dracula, a vampire who lives in Transylvania. He's the world's first vampire. He made himself. There was no deal with Satan. There was no queen of the vampire Egyptian, no demon possessing a human and then creating a half-breed. But Dracula himself was a human, a soldier. It's implied that he may be Vlad the Impaler, the real historical character. But no matter what, he's a Turk conqueror descended from Attila the Hun himself. And in his human life, he was a statesman, an architect, and a genius for his day. But he flirted with dark magics. And in doing so, he turned himself into a vampire. He died as a human and raised again as a vampire. And that was centuries before this book takes place, which was in the then modern times of the late 19th century. For hundreds of years, Dracula had lived in Transylvania, growing his power, learning his strengths, learning his abilities. And after a while, his conqueror nature has come forth again. In his human life, he was a conqueror of other lands. And now, as a super being, an immortal who feeds off the blood of humans, He's ready to conquer again, and the land he wants to conquer now is London, England. To do this, he hires Jonathan Harker, a solicitor's clerk, to help him arrange some financial matters, including buying a house that he can own in London. And that's really where our story begins, with Harker traveling to Count Dracula's castle in Transylvania to help teach him the ways of the English people and secure for him some property. Now, Dracula... The book is entirely epistolary, and it's told primarily through letters and, even more, journal entries. There are some memos, news clippings, and other ways of telling us the story, but this is a book that contains no prose. Nothing is from the point of view of an omniscient narrator. It's all in a first-person storytelling style that hops from character to character. And the first four chapters are all Jonathan Harker's journal of his travels to Castle Dracula, his meeting of the strange Count, the fact that the Count feeds him but the Count does not eat himself, the Count's strange mannerisms, and soon exhibits of the Count's powers, his extraordinary strength, his ability to scale vertical walls like a lizard. He starts to keep Jonathan in the castle like a prisoner, first telling him of the dangerous wolves that are out there but then eventually locking him in certain areas of the castle. Harker, being of a curious sort, does go exploring and finds three vampire women, sexy, seductive, and hungry. Normally, they're only fed lowly beasts by Dracula, so when this hearty meal walks right into them, they proceed to seduce and try to feed on Harker until he is indeed saved by Dracula. And obviously, Harker survives his encounters as all of this is told in the past tense. Harker journaling of these events after they happened. And these first four chapters, wow, they're really very good. It really brought me in. It was giving me exactly what I wanted. Dracula. An experience with Dracula. I was being introduced to Dracula as Harker was being introduced to Dracula. I was learning of his powers as Harker was. Being told in a first-person perspective could almost make me feel like I was there in the castle and having these conversations. And these are tense chapters full of dread, and they just keep increasing with suspense. 
And of course, it has the line that was turned into a classic by the movie, Listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. Sometimes it takes a movie adaptation to create a classic line, such as Carrie's, they're all going to laugh at you, but here, this is in Stoker's original. And I think that as a child and a teenager, this is the part that always brought me in and made me excited to read this book. And these four chapters end on almost literally a cliffhanger. Harker thinks that now that his business for Dracula is concluded, Dracula may kill him. And Harker is going to try to escape the castle by climbing out one of the windows. He's writing this in the journal before he tries it. And so, does he survive? Does he not? We don't know. We are not going to hear from Jonathan for 15 more chapters in this book. Instead, the book travels to London before Dracula does, and our cast of characters grows. And we start with Jonathan's fiance, Mina, and letters between her and her friend, Lucy. And Lucy is going on and on about three men who came to her home and proposed to her in one single day. And this section really goes on at length, and we are introduced to the culture of the Londoners. And it's almost fun to look back and think about this chaste of a time. I honestly don't know. Did men and women really not date before proposals? Did they just have flirtations from across a room? And in order to start dating someone you were interested in, did you have to propose marriage and then just hope things worked out? Because none of these men appear to have dated her at all. She was not out playing the field, so to speak, but three men came to her home and one day proposed to them. She was only in love with one of them, but she admired all three. And this portion of the book, after such the dread and monster movie setting of Transylvania, really struck me like whiplash. It was almost like I'd gone from chapter 4 and I was reading Dracula to chapter 5 and I was reading Sense and Sensibility or something. In retrospect, I think this is where I, as a teenager, always put the book down. It's here where it stopped being fun monster movie reading and became something that my sophomore year English teacher would have assigned me to read, something along the lines of Great Expectations or some other Dickens tale. But now that I've completed the book, I realize that what they're really just doing here is trying to introduce the main cast of heroes, of which Jonathan Harker is but one. We have Dr. John Seward. He's a psychiatrist at the local sanitarium and one of the men Lucy turns down in a proposal for marriage. Another man she turns down, Quincy P. Morris, the lone yank in this book, a Texan who's living in London, and perhaps the least developed of all the cast. He never journals. Perhaps that's an American thing. Perhaps I look at all of these characters and their comprehensive journaling they do that must take hours every night to write down every word that was said, virtually a transcription I really think court stenographers would strive for the accuracy that these people bring to their journal entries of every line spoke in a conversation, and a journal entry that can span a full day or more verbatim. But Quincy, not a writing type, he's a Texan, and the character who remains most at arm's length. And then finally, the third man to propose to Lucy Arthur Homewood, and she's the one he loves and the one she chooses to marry. Another semi-underdeveloped character, despite the fact that he does journal, he's off-screen for much of the book dealing with his own ailing father. And these sections go on and on as we're introduced to 
these three men and the two women. And because the story of Harker ended on such a cliffhanger, on such a great moment, I'm wondering through these pages, where is more of Dracula? Where is more of Jonathan? Why do I care that Lucy and Mina are having a picnic in a graveyard and hear tales from an old coot? This is where I put the book down. But being that I was really not reading Dracula for enjoyment, I was reading Dracula so that I could learn from it and be more ready next week when I read Salem's Lot, I pushed through this section this time for the first time in my life. And it's a little bit disappointing that I did. The book never gets back to Dracula. The first four chapters of this book are by far the best four chapters of this book. Instead, the rest of the book is all about these people dealing with Dracula almost like a natural force, like a tornado, something that's coming into town. But rarely do they interact with Dracula because these five characters that I've just discussed have no idea of Dracula and Jonathan's dealings with him in Transylvania, when he does arrive in London, he arrives with a bang on a boat full of dead men. Everybody's interested in the boat, but nobody is even aware of Dracula and his being on the boat. We infer this. The characters not having the knowledge we do, we realize that the dog that escapes the boat is Dracula transformed into a creature. The locals just think a dog has escaped and was the only survivor of this boat trip. But never again do we get close to Dracula. This is very unlike the movie versions that I've seen, because in all the movie versions, Dracula arrives in London and becomes a member of society. There's often dinners with Dracula where there would be some verbal sparring, Dracula trying to fit into high society. And the others, Seward, Harker, Homewood, depending on the version, interacting with Dracula, allowing us to see more of the character. But here, they're all chasing after the character. And really, what motivates them is Lucy. Lucy starts getting sick. She's a sleepwalker. And she's been walking at night back to the graveyard where she's been having her picnics. And then she starts wasting away one of those mysterious diseases. And so, despite having been turned down for marriage, Dr. John Seward, and he works at a sanitarium, but he's also a medical doctor, just a doctor of general medicine, I suppose, is brought in to figure out what's wrong with her. And he sees she's wasting away, she's pale, there are two puncture marks on her neck of unknown origin, but he cannot figure out the disease. And so, he calls for his old teacher, Abraham Van Helsing, to come and help. And that is our last hero of this story, Van Helsing. And if you've heard of Dracula, obviously you've heard of Van Helsing, or even if you hadn't, maybe you've heard of the Hugh Jackman movie from a few years ago about the monster hunter. Here, Van Helsing is an older, wizened doctor, and he comes and seems to immediately know what's going on. He doesn't have to detect. He examines Lucy and realizes what's wrong with her, and starts giving blood transfusions, and hanging garlic around her room. Van Helsing doesn't tell anyone what's going on, but he knows that this is a vampire and knows how to ward off a vampire. He knows that garlic will keep Dracula at bay. And this proceeds almost like an episode of House, with Lucy getting a little bit worse and then a little bit better as Van Helsing tries some new strange ritual to protect her and blood transfusions galore to put blood back into her. 
and then something occurs and she gets worse again. We think she's dead several times. Far too many times they walk in and find her again crumpled, again more pale than ever, again thinking she's dead, and then again a blood transfusion can save her. And here, I really have to wonder if Dracula in the popular culture has absolutely ruined this book for me. If you are reading this book in the 19th century and you don't know vampires, you don't know their rules, you don't know quite what's going on, this must play as a tremendous mystery. You have this creature that Harker encountered in Transylvania come to London. His powers change from chapter to chapter. He can turn into mist. He can scale walls. He can transform into animals. He can transform into a bat. He can hypnotize and control you with eye contact. And if you didn't know going in all of this, perhaps this plays as a great mystery. If you don't know that vampires feed off the blood of their victims and that their bite turns somebody else into another vampire, then surely this must be a wonderful journey of discovery. But a hundred years later, this is incredibly tedious. We have lived with Dracula for a hundred years and know what's going on and want this story to get to the point. But it drags on and on and on. One bright point for me during this section is another character, Renfield. Of course, if you've seen the movies, you know Renfield is the bug-eating minion of Dracula. And here, even before Dracula came to London, Renfield was a patient of Dr. Seward's at the sanitarium. His star patient, you might say. The case he's most interested in. And again, even before Dracula... Renfield has a strange psychosis that believes eating lives will help prolong his own life. He starts by eating flies, thinking that a fly's life is less than that of a man, but if he consumes enough flies, then he will be able to extend his life to immortality. And he has a weird pyramid scheme of lives going on. He eventually asks for a spider, and the spider eats his flies, and then he eats the spider, so he's able to consume more lives more quickly. And then he wants a rat, so he can feed the spider to the rat. Eventually he wants a cat, so that the cat can eat the rat and he can eat the cat. It's a very mathematical psychosis that he has, and I looked forward to this character becoming the minion of Dracula, as we've seen him in the books, as we've seen him in the movies. So while Lucy is wasting and waning and waxing and coming and going, and sleepwalking and being bitten again, it's Renfield who kind of gets my attention, and I do like reading the first time that he came to be, and that, yes, Dracula does come, and somehow, while Renfield is still in the sanitarium, Dracula conspires with him, offers him the immortality that Renfield craves in exchange for doing his bidding. That bidding seems to be a little ill-defined. Renfield very rarely leaves the sanitarium the entire time. He never goes to live at Castle Dracula. He never goes to be the human watchdog of the vampire master. Instead, he escapes from time to time and is captured again. He tries to kill a few people and is captured again. His psychosis comes and goes in waves. It's another mystery in this, which is far more, I suppose, a mystery novel than a horror novel. But during this long stretch of book, and this is very long... I'm just trying to get through it and get back to the characters we know and finding out more about Dracula. And eventually we do. Eventually, as Lucy is getting sicker, and minor spoiler alert, I think everybody knows this, Lucy eventually dies. And 
comes back to life as one of the undead. It's Van Helsing who leads the charge against the vampires. Everybody else is looking to Van Helsing for advice. Even Harker, who eventually does return from Transylvania and gets married almost immediately. They're all looking to Van Helsing, and Van Helsing knows everything. He knows all the rules of the vampire. Everything we've known for years, he knows. He knows that the vampire can turn to mist. He knows he can turn into a wolf or a bat. He knows he can mesmerize victims who look into his eyes. He knows that vampires don't like religious symbols, crucifixes, holy water, communion wafers, wild roses, that he can only enter when invited, and that to kill the main vampire, you not only need to stab them through the heart, and it doesn't have to be a wooden stake, just stab them through the heart with anything, but you also must decapitate them, and all of this. I mean, there's even more rules. Like, I never had heard a vampire can only cross running water at low tide or high tide. Other than that, they're just trapped on a boat. But all this information is in Van Helsing's head. He's discovering none of this for the first time. He's learning nothing. He's telling us everything. And to be honest, that kind of makes Van Helsing come off like a douche. I mean, he knows everything that's going on, but because it's so unbelievable, he has to force the others around him to learn for themselves. And because he's not forthcoming, because he plays everything so strange, is part of the reason Lucy dies. I do find it amusing that because Van Helsing knows absolutely everything, but we learn nothing of Van Helsing. We don't learn of his past very much. We don't learn a whole lot about him. He's just there to be a character who dumps information on us. You could close your eyes and imagine that Van Helsing learned everything when he was going through the adventures Hugh Jackman went through in that Van Helsing movie. There's nothing in this book that contradicts the continuity in that movie, sadly. But characters are a problem in Bram Stoker's book. Van Helsing is the worst, but every character in this book is pretty bland. I mean, imagine a book where you have six main characters, two of whom are named John. One's John, one's Jonathan, but a little confusing on that front. But of these six main characters, five men plus Mina, there's no dissent. They are six people with the purest of hearts who will sacrifice all for the greater good. They will spend their fortunes on weapons to fight a vampire. They will drop everything in their lives to chase Dracula and to protect their friend. There is no infighting. There are no skirmishes. There are no quarrels. They are all completely altruistic people fighting against this monstrous evil. How freaking dull is that? Why have so many characters if you're not going to differentiate them? Why have us read their journals if you're not going to put any private information in their journals? How great would it be if you had Dr. Seward, who was turned down by Lucy, Lucy, who decided to marry Arthur instead, if you had Seward writing, Arthur was in danger, I thought about letting him die so that I could have Lucy, that kind of interpersonal drama. How about telling us the same events from two people's point of view, much as Stephen King would do in Carrie? Let the reader be challenged by a sequence of events. Instead, every event is told to us exactly in one person's journal, from one person's point of view, and stated as fact. And despite that we're reading so many journals, some of which are dictated, some of which are written, written by a man, written by a woman, there's no change in voice. They all write the same. They all write 
as an omniscient narrator, making me wonder what the point of having this entire book be journal entries was. I mean, it comes across as a 19th century version of a found footage film for points that I cannot understand. I don't know why this style was chosen for the story that's being told. Eventually, the book does raise the stakes ever so slightly. After Lucy dies, Dracula realizes that these people are onto him, and Dracula goes on the offensive and goes after Mina, deciding that if he can threaten one of their women, perhaps it will show his power over this group. And Mina becomes a semi-vampire. This is something else with the vampire lore that's here in the book. Mina feeds off Dracula as Dracula feeds off her. She sucks the blood of Dracula. I've read that in Interview with the Vampire, and you see it in True Blood, humans drinking vampire blood. And I wondered where that came from. And it came from Bram Stoker. But what it did was create Mina as almost a half-vampire. She is not a vampire Though she is cursed by God, she gets a burn on her forehead from a communion wafer because she is no longer clean. And so, if Mina were to die, she would come back as a vampire. To stop this, to save her, they must hunt down and kill Dracula. And thus, we have the other trope that we've seen from so many movies, like The Lost Boys, If the head vampire is killed, then the sub-vampires can become human again. That is here in this Dracula story. And it creates a ticking clock. It would be a more ticking clock if Mina were actually dying, but it's implied she could live out a lifespan of 40 to 60 more damned years. And I mean damned not because they're long, but because she is damned. And if she dies as an old woman after a long, happy life as Mrs. Jonathan Harker with a burn on her forehead, then she'd raise up as Grandma Vampire. But the men in the party all seem to think, hey, we've got to go after Dracula and take care of him. And Dracula goes on the run. He's like, well, screw this. I'm going back to Transylvania where people aren't trying to kill me and they have to go after him. Really, Dracula is defeated far too easily in this way. There is one true encounter between the men and Dracula, and after that, Dracula does go on the run. He is portrayed as being a cowardly figure. And in fact, that gets to my interpretation of this book. Dracula has been dissected so many different ways as metaphor for its time, and I've read several of those hypotheses while preparing for this book review. But before I read any of them, the one I came across on my own interpretation is that this book is really about the benefits of modern society versus the primitive society. Think about where we were in the late 19th century. Modern society as it still exists today was being defined. London was becoming one of the big cities of the world. But it was a country very close to what would be considered the primitive outsiders versus the cultured urbanites. Dracula is a Romanian. And even today, I traveled to Europe and those in France and England warned us about the Romanians and how they had come and the gypsies who would steal from you. It's a racism that still exists today about the Romanian people. But where Stoker really shows his hand is in this long, drawn-out scene with Van Helsing once again espousing endless knowledge. And he talks about how Dracula has a, and the quote is, child brain. And he's lived for hundreds of years. He's described as a genius in his time, hence how he discovered the alchemy to become a vampire. 
but he still has a child brain, which is why he's so easily defeated by the man brains of the 19th century Londoner. It goes on again and again about how Dracula's child brain was conquest. And then when defeated, the child brain wants to run back home. The child brain has only one goal in mind, whereas a man's brain can have alternate plans and contingency plans. Also taken into account here is the modernization of woman in society. Van Helsing, I guess, compliments? I'm hesitant to use that word, but compliments Mina because she thinks like a man. She has a man's brain in a woman's body because she's able to be part of this team. She memorizes train schedules and is able to help them realize their plans. And so in Van Helsing's view, and thus the view told to us the audience, the top level of intellectualism is a man brain, which women in London are starting to take. The second level would be a woman brain. And then the bottom level is a child brain. But that's a child brain of an urbanite Londoner, which is the best an outsider, a primitive, can hope to have. It's a really strange viewpoint from a novel that's well over a hundred years old. I find it even more amusing because now we live in such a secular age where religion itself can be seen as a primitive ritual. So the fact that this book seems to be pro-modernization, but yet it is the symbols of the Catholic Church above all that hold Dracula at bay. Van Helsing goes on and on about the science that will defeat the alchemy. Their science of medicine can try to prolong Lucy's life. Their science can help them stop Dracula. But yet, they themselves must rely on crucifixes, communion wafers, and holy water to defeat the vampire. They talk about how Mina gets the burn on her forehead, showing that there is a mark that God is frowning upon her. And so, as modern as the time is that this book was written, it still seems somewhat primitive. If you were to have Stoker alive today, I wonder if the Stoker of the 19th century would be considered as having the child brain of thinking that the crucifix, specific Catholic imagery, holds such sway over demons. I mean, what if Van Helsing was Jewish? Would he not have the man brain to know to get a crucifix? Why specifically Catholic imagery? Why the communion wafer? It's because that's the society in which Stoker lived. And also in the society where Stoker lived, women were not equal. Despite giving Mina the man brain, she's really a damsel in distress. She's more intelligent and helpful than Lucy, but once Lucy is killed... Mina becomes the new female victim for Dracula. Dracula doesn't feed on men. He kills men. He feeds on women, thus setting up the sexual aspect of the vampire. And even worse, the climax of the film is not humans versus vampires. It's Londoners plus a Texan against Romanians. Dracula returns back home, and Romanians are transporting his coffin. It's the Romanians who fight on Dracula's behalf. It is modern versus primitive, and the modern wins. It is a complete cultural statement about how the modernization and urbanization of London is better than those around them. And those around them may have their gypsy curses and their mystic ways and their strange pagan beliefs, but being a London Catholic, that's the way that's going to defeat the villains and the evil. It's a seduction. Now, 
Stoker's Dracula wasn't successful in its time. It was enjoyed by some of the contemporaries. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who famously created Sherlock Holmes, really enjoyed the book. But it was not a popular success. What made the book successful were the movies. First, Nosferatu was made. If you haven't seen that, I suggest you do if you want to see the legacy of the vampire. Nosferatu was a takeoff of Stoker's Dracula story to the point that Stoker's widow sued over the story. But with the success of Nosferatu, Universal Pictures got involved and began their monster mash movies with the original adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And from there, yes, we got the plays, and because of the popularity of Dracula on screen, people went back and made this book a classic. But truthfully, I don't think Dracula works on the page. I don't think it did then. I don't think it does now. I think Dracula works as an image on the screen. I think the screenwriters have taken this book and taken the best parts of it and streamlined it for their era. When Dracula was brought to screen in the 30s, yes, the crucifix and holy water still had their sway, and that went all the way through the 80s. These days in vampire stories... We see less and less crucifixes. We see more and more stakes. Still see holy water just because it works like acid on a vampire. It's a very good visual. But Dracula is a great blueprint, but it's not a great novel. They always say that a book is better than a movie. And in this is a case where I go, no, the movies are better than the book. To me, this book is horror homework. I'm really glad to have read it so that I could read Van Helsing's exposition on the rules of vampirism and see where it all comes. If I ever decide to write my own vampire story, I can find a few little nuggets that nobody else has mined, like the running water bit. Don't know how I'd factor that into a plot, but it certainly would be unique. But for entertainment, this book is just leaden. It is just way too long. It is way too linear. There's no escalation. There's no real changes in the plot. I would really like this to be suspenseful and monstrous, and instead, it's just wordy. But maybe you've read Dracula and you disagree. Maybe you think it's a classic book that I'm not giving its due. If so, tell me. I want to hear it. Send me an email at arniec at booksandnachos.com or come to the Books and Nachos forums. There's a link from our website at booksandnachos.com. I'm really open to other viewpoints. I would like to see this book in a light other than the one I do. I'd like to see if there's something I'm missing in Stoker's prose that would really make me rethink my position. So let me know. And then I'll be back next week with another Stephen King review. I've finished Dracula. Now it's time to look at a 1970s version of Dracula in Salem's Lot, where Dracula is a new vampire named Barlow. It's continuing our look at all the Stephen King fiction here at Books and Nachos. So I'll be back then, and in the meantime, please be sure to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved.
The diligence will start for Bulkovina. The diligence will start for Bulkovina. Bulkovina. His ability to scare walls. Scare walls? The walls are frightened. Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction or non-fiction, graphic novels and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. <laughs> Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and non-fiction, graphic novels and more. We're here to help you find something great to read. Ha 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 ha!